Hello and welcome to Primary Sources, a spin-off podcast from the Doctor Who show where we take what people were saying about Doctor Who in the 80s and 90s and we riff on it. The conversation might stick closely to the primary source we're discussing or it might go off on its own tangent. Who knows? It's Doctor Who without a safety net, basically. And for this episode, I'm joined by Stephen from the New to Who podcast. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Rob. Thank you so much for inviting me along. This sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) I get very hyped up doing these because I'm excited myself, even though I know what the letters are going to be. <laughs> we can imagine my surprise and uh, interest. Let's let's go. This is this is going to be really good. Uh, the Doctor Who magazine I'm reading from today is the 10th of July, 1991. 91. Okay, not quite even to fandom at this point, but um, okay, let's go. I think you'll do fine. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I'm a doctor. No, I'm not actually. Um, okay, this first <laughs> this first letter is called Surprise Doctor, and it runs. At last, it's all flooding back. I knew there was another doctor between the two bakers. What was his name? Peter Davison. Words fail me. We've actually seen something of him in your magazine. I was beginning to think there had been six doctors instead of the actual seven. Then there he was on the cover of issue one seven two. Chameleon was in The Travelling Companions. Jeanette Fielding was in Who's Who. There he was in Brief Encounters. Then, wait for it, here's the best bit, a 10-page coverage of The Awakening, along with some excellent artwork. The Peter Davison era is so neglected, which is surprising as it's one of the best. Way back in issue 144, Top 10 Turkeys, he was the only Doctor not to have a story featured. Thanks for pleasing a Davison fan, and I'm pleased to see plans for more recent stories to be released on video next year. That's from Stephen Taylor, Southwell Knotts, although given the topic, it could have been from me. So, (laughs) Stephen, over to you. (laughs) Isn't it hilarious that uh, we Davo fans, uh, Robin Robin myself, uh, sort of finding that this is a common thing throughout the ages, that even way back in 1991... Uh, there were Davo fans who would just say, no, not enough Davo, far too neglected. Mm-hmm. Neglected is actually the word that I wrote down here just as you were reading that out before uh, the, the writer um, mentioned that as well. It, it does feel that way and maybe it's always been that way. It's uh, fascinating to think um, why, why that might that? be the case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the question that always comes to mind. I, I feel like you have such a larger-than-life persona in uh, Tom Baker's Doctor Colin's obviously a, a larger-than-life um, actor and persona as well. And maybe there's that sort of nuance about Peter that gets lost, which is such a shame because I think you and I are very much awake to it. But um, every time I watch Davo, uh, as you like to call him, mm-hmm. there's something that he does on <laughs> screen, whether it's just in the background um, or you know just facially, um, just the, the way he sort of reacts and responds, um, that is just... It's it's nuanced. It's clever. It's 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 hilarious. Even like there's that bit where the the murker sort of appears, and and Davison's acting it in terms of like, are you ki- are you kidding me? Like, are you serious? This is what's happening now, <laughs> because <laughs> because really, there's no other way to respond to a pantomime horse, you know, being trotted out with green paint sort of still dripping from it on a on a Doctor Who set. It's um yes, he's he's so he's so wonderfully sort of um. As I keep going back to that word nuanced. But maybe that doesn't that doesn't sort of capture the imagination or capture the attention as immediately as it does with a with a bombastic doctor as as Dava has either side. So maybe that's the reason. Um, the other reason that I think is probably that um, a good half of these stories I think are really quite good, um, and the others are, are pretty underdone um, to to pretty poor. You know, you think of 
Terminus, King's Demons, Time Flight, uh, and mm-hmm. Warriors of the Deep as well. These are not um, well scripted and or not well realized stories. Um, so he sort of gets saddled with um, being beige is probably that sort of uh, adjective that's used over and over again mm. to describe him, which I don't think is entirely fair. Although beige is certainly part of the aesthetic of the early 80s, and maybe that's um, one of the reasons why. But then the other thing is a lot of these scripts aren't particularly good. Well, not a lot. Half of those scripts aren't very good. The other half are wonderful. Um, I'm going to stop yeah. there and throw it back to you because I know you're a massive Davo fan as well, and I want to hear what you um, want to say to uh, in response to this because, yeah, it's just weird that this seems to be a recurring uh, complaint by Davo fans over the decades. Well, I found it interesting that this letter mentions something from issue 144, which I'll have to go back and look at now, uh, Mm -hmm. that the top 10 turkeys didn't have a Davo story in it. And I thought, oh, well, maybe that's because not every Davo story really hits the heights, but maybe they don't also plumb the depths of some other eras. But then with what (laughs) you were saying, there, 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 there are a few stinkers like, yeah, time flight, I'll pay. Uh, yeah. You know, there, there are other Davo stories, though, that people routinely pan, for example, Black Orchid. And I think Black Orchid's perfectly fine for a 50-minute romp. Ooh. See, I think it's got a great first part, but the second part is just where it all collapses. But it still gets by on this, on this head of steam that's built up by that first part, which is so charming. There's beautiful character moments, a location shooting as well, which always looks good, and the cricket thing. Like, these, these aren't necessarily good for storytelling, but they just add to the atmosphere, and I think it sort of steams by on that. But, yeah, I think, I think Black Orchid's probably one of those that sort of is maybe a bit too unjustly uh, reviled when he's probably just middling. I would agree with that. Do you think it's weird that Davison is like the 1920s Doctor, yet he only goes there once in the TV series oh, at least? That's a, I mean, it's a good question. I, th- I like the fact that it's not overdone. There mm. is a lot more that could have been done with that era and that context, that sort of interwar period, the long weekends as it's known uh, in literary circles. And I think you sort of get the... The best of it, perhaps, with you know the setting of, of setting of um, Cranley Hall and and um, you know the, uh, the, <laughs> the the party and the cricket match and all of that kind of stuff. The toffs being toffs, and I'm not sure how many more times you could have done it, um, but I'm glad that they did. I don't know if they had gone back, what else would they have done? Do you think, Rob? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, are we thinking in today's budgets or the budgets of yesterday? I guess the budgets yeah. of yesterday. <laughs> Uh, because with today's budgets, you know, to be in 1920s New York, that could be quite interesting. Mm. Uh, you know, or 1920s in a uh, an outpost of the Empire somewhere and something. Yeah, going the on, final you know. days of Empire. That yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, you know, uh, where things are changing after World War One, mm-hmm, uh, but we mm-hmm. haven't got quite yet to fascism and world war ii brewing in the 30s you know yeah. that could be quite interesting um although it might yeah, be a bit okay. deep for doctor who back in those days you know it's more um demons of the punjab sort of territory perhaps in in terms of what it's trying to tackle maybe but at the same time um i do feel like there is a hidden depth to a lot of the davison stories you and i did an episode for new to who on enlightenment which is one of the most mm-hmm. lyrical allegorical metaphorical gorgeous stories in that in that era Yes. And I, so I think I don't, I don't think uh, Davison's Doctor and Davison's era are sort of strangers to that. Interesting, the the um, the writer of the letter mentioned the Awakening. I think like that's another underrated one for me. Um, oh, me too. It's 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 totally slight. It's it's fifty minutes and certainly doesn't outweigh its welcome, outstay its welcome. But also, it probably doesn't have the time to um, develop a lot of the themes in it as well. And for me, 
it seems to have that shadow of uh, Britain in the early 80s, the whole Falklands thing, um, and the way in which, maybe to get a little bit political at this point, um, public sentiment was used by certain, uh, you know, uh, people within um, British society to sort of foment this um, bloodlust, I guess, and, you know, this this idea that a country like Britain would go to war over tiny islands in the South Atlantic with a country like Argentina just sort of makes no sense when you look at it these days. Mm. But the way in which the malice sort of incites a bloodlust um, in the in the stories, I think, analogous to, to what happened in the Falklands. So to me, that's like a, a really fascinating 50 minutes, um, 50 minutes of Doctor Who because it is uh, so of its time and, and sort of harkens to that that very kind of Falklands like um, um, influence on the, on it. So to me, that is massively underrated. But again, mm. you know, I can understand why. Um, it's not a classic, but I think there's more to it than, than people than people think, definitely. I, I quite like yeah. The Awakening. I think it's very much a forgotten story, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. By, uh, by a lot of people. Anyway, shall we move on? Yeah, yeah. Alrighty. This next one has the title, The Grand Old Man. Hmm. It isn't often that I'm in agreement with the grand old man of British fandom, Gary Russell. But I wish to express my heartfelt admiration of his opinion of the mass of artistic codswallop which calls itself City of Death. Oh, All this story had going for it was the lion's share of the season 17 budget and a noteworthy cast, most of whom treated the series as more of a worker's playtime than any in seasons 23 and 24. As a tribute to Graham Williams, this story is a complete sham and I can do no more than agree with Mr. Russell. Something of the calibre of Image of the Fendal and the Rybos operation should be released, particularly the latter, which is blessed with not only one of the finest scripts, but also one of the most believable cultures to ever grace the series. I hope City of Death will not be the last Graham Williams produced story to be released on BBC Video, but next time I hope something much more fitting, that is anything except Underworld and Horror of Fang Rock, will be chosen as a much better example of Graham Williams' dedication and seemingly limitless artistic talent. That's from Gary Phillips, Rotherham in South Yorkshire. Lot to unpick there. Well, Gary Williams, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> City of Death, City of Death is the the very best of the Graham Williams era. I think it distills. I think it distills at its core what Graham Williams was trying to do with the program, but never was able to do because of budget. Um, it's lyrical. It's beautiful. <laughs> all the things that I said, Enlightenment was as well. But it's charming and it's funny and it's fun. And that's very much what I think of when I think about the Graham Williams era. And when I think about the turkeys in that era, all of those things still, but just frustrated by the lack of realisation or the lack of budget for um, a proper realisation. I, I mean, I really find Horns of Nine one quite lovely. I'm, I'm a fan of it, um, but it's a terrible production and I can't, um, can't sort of disagree with that. Now, this is all based on, it seems, uh, video releases, VHS releases that were coming out. Yeah. They were hearing what was going to be released. And I think Gary kind of gets it right that, you know, Underworld might be a bit of a duff release, but he throws in horror of Fang Rock as a duff <laughs> release. And I think, my God, that's an amazing story. It is, isn't it? But it's also one of those ones that is probably isn't too reflective of the Williams era anyway, because it's just at that perfect sort of handover point between the Hinchcliffe uh, era and the Williams era. It's neither one nor the other. It's it's probably recognisably, mm. at least vis- visibly, uh, visually rather, uh, a Hinchcliffe story. Um, but, you know, there's there's a sort of levity 
well, everyone dies, but there's, there's a sort of levity in tone throughout um, that is, is sort of hearkening forward to, to the Williams era as well. You know, just the way in which Tom plays some of those lines like a, like a buffoon, and that's very much what he uh, sort of goes on to do as well. And I certainly don't think that's a, that's a duffer. I think that's probably one of the, the best Tom Baker stories out there. That's really a really odd call um, and probably sort of makes me second guess as to, you know, um, just just how much thought went into this letter. You can't say City of Death is a stinker. You cannot. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, and if I – like, I think we did it in episode four or five of New to Who. If there's one story that you want to introduce someone who hasn't seen – um, any classic Who, not just to the Williams era, not just to the to the Baker era, but probably even to the all twenty six years of Doctor Who. I don't think you can go far wrong with starting with City of Death. It's magnificent. It's just, uh, I don't know. I'm, I've run out of things to say. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Well, look, Stephen. I'm wondering. Gary Phillips. He's in Rotherham, South Yorkshire. I'm wondering <laughs> if there was. What are you going with this, Rob? <laughs> I was going to say his location isn't... No, I mean, I'm bringing up his location, Stephen, because he's in the UK. Uh, You know, South Yorkshire could be anywhere in the UK. And I'm wondering, I don't think there would have been a repeat of City of Death, would there, between it going out live and here, which is like uh, 10 or 11 years later, um, Mm. whatever it might be. Um, I'm wondering if he's relying on like a 10-year-old memory this there was certainly possible, no isn't it was there a novelization i don't think no nope, there never so. was no. not until james goss came out with it a few years ago yeah that's right so what what's he relying on here i mean he could have been in fan circles and had some dodgy dub of it or something i don't know but he could just have a dodgy memory of it yeah and this is a good idea and this is maybe where australia has benefited more than than the uk in terms of the um repeats that we did have and i remember watching city of death maybe late 1993 at 4.30 in the morning for the first time and being utterly charmed by it. Mm. The other thing is, I think fan consensus, and I obviously wasn't around at the time, of the Williams era in that period wasn't too kind, right? Like it was seen as like the yeah. worst era of Doctor Who, um, you know, worse even than perhaps, um, you know, the eras that you and I might think about instead. Um, and maybe that's got a lot to do with it as well, right? Oh, I think so. I mean, there were some beloved eras and then Williams came along. It's a bit different and people hate change. So I think it got panned a bit more than it yeah. should have. Yeah, and it's, it's Hinchcliffe and Holmes are a tough act to follow. Like, it's it's not the, oh, yes. the be-all and end-all of Doctor Who, but, man, they did really, really amazing things. And to sort of be handed, you know, 45p in a piece of string uh, and know that 45p is not going to be worth 45p at the end of the year, <laughs> is, that's, a, that's a tough, tough ask, right? I think so. Let's move on to our third and final letter. The heading okay. here is actions, not words. And it begins. Oh dear, spare us from more whining. Why would anyone bother writing in defense of the Crotons? Of course, Patrick Troughton and company performed well, as John Adams and Edward Parsons proclaim back in Dwim 173. But the story is really very dull with inept victims who talk too much and silly villains. All mm-hmm. the same, Gary Russell, and here we are in Gary Russell's back again, was wrong to call it the worst ever. Hartnell's The Gunfighters is probably that, Oof. along with the astronauts acting in Death to the Daleks, and the dreadful alleged acting of the Metabilis natives in Planet of the Spiders. Absolutely <laughs> right with that last, Gary. <laughs> and several other cases. So, could you people who only whine shut up now? 
Have you ever thought that it's not Colin Baker or Sylvester McCoy who, who are to blame for Doctor Who's situation? It's these Absolutely. alleged fans who accept nothing since the 1960s who have damaged it. Why do you keep watching? You only bring down the attention of the BBC. They've no doubt listened to your interminable comments and decided that if it's disliked, why keep it? I only went into fandom for fun because I love the spirit of it, but I have run into constant illogical screeching about the glory days. You people are really mm. sick. Does no one else find incurable nostalgia incredibly boring? It has long been my opinion that all the elite complainers in fandom should attempt to produce, write, and act in their own series, so then they could suffer my laughing hysterically at them and ripping whatever they do to pieces. Only fair. Go on and do it. Action, not whining. That's from Ruth Hanley, Tiburon, California, USA. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Well, Tell us what you um, really think, Ruth. I know, right? <laughs> Um, wow, where to start with that? I think, okay, first off, by saying that there never was a golden age. Um, <laughs> but is, isn't it hilarious that as fans, this is what we do, we whine. Uh, all the way through right now to with the Not My Doctor crew, right, who uh, are picking yep. faults with every sort of um, fundamental aspect of Doctor Who. And maybe that's just something that we do as fans because we love it so much we, we want it to be the best that we possibly can so we critique it. But that's kind of like the... Um, you know, the over-the-top aggressive parent who's coaching from the sidelines when the kids are playing under-six football. You know, this this is not <laughs> the way to do it. You know, this, this really isn't productive and it certainly isn't um, a good use of your time or, or um, you know, subjecting your, your heart to that kind of stress, I think. Um, mm. The other thing that really stood out was some of the stories that were mentioned there. Uh, isn't it interesting that, you know, the Crotons and the Gunfighters um, while still polling quite low in, in you know things like the Doctor Who polls, uh, magazine polls to this day, do sort of get a bit of a, a renaissance or a, or a sort of reevaluation. Now I'm not I'm not sold on either, and in fact, Dan um, picked the Crotons as his worst of the '60s um, on our uh, last Christmas uh, special, and mm-hmm. and Cole picked the Gunfighters as the worst of the '60s. <laughs> so and and I think like they're not great stories. I don't think anyone can get convince me that oh you know uh, the Gunfighters is is a masterpiece, but um, it's it's probably not the stinker that you know I think Celestial Toy Maker is probably the worst of the '60s myself. Like there's some real bad ones uh, that you can sort of pick in its place instead. But, um, yeah, that, that whole sort of um, fan consensus and the way that it evolves was something that came to mind just when you were reading that out. And I'm just wondering, just like, is there a story, and it could be the Crotons of the Gunfighters, but is there a story from that period that you feel like has gone like a massive, um, uh, you know, undergone a massive reevaluation or a change in that fan consensus? Oh, you know what? I think that the go-to, and it's an obvious one when I say it, is probably Enemy of the World. Yeah, yeah, good point, definitely. Which I always quite liked via the novelization, but it seems no one else relatively read the novelization uh, because mm. it always had this sort of aura around it that it wasn't so hot. And then it came back and people went, oh my God, this is actually yeah. quite good. <laughs> yeah, it, and again, it's probably one of those stories that is better than we thought it was. I mean, is it as, as fantastic as... Oh, I don't know any other um, Troughton classic. Like I think, I think about the invasion, the invasion. I think about power. Yeah. yeah, power of the Daleks, and I just sort of think it's probably not up there, but certainly it surprised us. It sort of blindsided us just in terms of how good it actually was. And I think maybe you're right. The the novel novelization by Ian Marder probably wasn't as well read. It sort of came out later on. I think in the in the run mm, towards the did. middle mid middle middle late eighties. So I think a lot of the audience had moved on by then. But also, wasn't that the novelization that was just absolutely chopped to hell? And doesn't make any 
damn sense at all. Like they took so much out of it um, to make it fit into the page count. It is a fairly thin novel, as I recall. I think that's probably yeah, why okay. I enjoyed it, reading it as a kid. It was a nice right. quick read. But um, I, I, I think I liked Marta's writing, and it just struck me as a, quite an adventurous, interesting yeah. story. And, you yeah. know, there was a fellow who looked like the Doctor, or the Doctor looked like this fellow, whichever way you want to look at it. And, you know, <laughs> amazing. It seemed really fun. Yeah, and I think it's probably um, resonant with us more so today because there is – like, you know, salamander-type figures in politics uh, these days, uh, mm. you can put it that way, perhaps. Um, and, and the way in which they manipulate uh, entire populations is maybe something that we recognise as well. So I think, yeah, that's yeah. a good shout. Enemy of the World definitely has gone a, uh, undergone a, a massive re-evaluation, hasn't it? Mm, I think so. And look, parting shot for me on this. Some of the stuff Ruth is saying here could have been taken from Twitter yesterday or earlier this oh, totally. morning. Yeah, Just yeah, the yeah. whole, you know, well, if, if you can't, if you want to criticise this, go and make your own show. You know, people say that sort of thing on Twitter right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I really would love that if I was uh, given, you know, a few million dollars and uh, all the licensing to do it. (laughs) Watch me go. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, uh, look, that's a Doctor Who magazine from over 29 years ago now. Steve, did you enjoy chatting through those fan letters? I did. And Rob, this is such a good concept. Like I never would have thought about it uh, as a point of talking, but what's really sort of um, become apparent as we've, as we've gone through this is just how applicable and relevant <laughs> a lot of the topics, you know, uh, almost 30 years ago in, a, in, a, in an ancient Doctor Who magazine are to conversation these days. Like we still talk about, as you say, the enemy of the world, or we still talk about Devo. And, and these are things that have happened, you know, sometimes before a lot of us are even born. And it's just, that's the magic of Doctor Who, isn't it? There's always, it's such a rich te- text. It's such a glorious tradition that we can just sort of pick through it um, forever, really. There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> that's what I find. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. That was good fun. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. 